good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with celebrated jazz pianist Javier Red to talk about the inspiration for his new album. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the U.S. premiere of a play titled The Writer. Later in the show, I'll check in with film critic Nick Allen to get his picks for some of the movies that might have gotten lost in the shuffle this year, and we'll revisit my look at the Andy Warhol exhibit that's currently on display in Glen Ellen. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. This is a tune-off pianist Javier Red's new album, Life and Umbrella. It's called Resilience Cycle. The song and the album have a personal connection to Red. The music was inspired by his son's autism diagnosis and society's treatment of neurodivergent people. Red and his band Imagery Converter will be performing at the Jazz Showcase on Wednesday, August 30th. I recently caught up with Red to talk about the new album, his move to Chicago less than a decade ago, and his musical influences. I got hooked by musicians around the ECM brand. Okay. So that was that was funny. I I think I I was getting you know, classical music instruction. And I I got interested by the sound of some of those musicians, Bobo Stenson, John Taylor. It kind of decided to start on that and, you know, melting that all with always a bit of uh, Mr. Oscar Peterson, which is very likely for a jazz pianist to, sure. to admire that work. So uh, that, I will say, th- those are starting my influences, but always also very nearby uh, some clone posters such as uh, Igor Stravinsky and the Rite of Springs. I don't know, I got some special natural connection with that. Red was born and raised in Mexico City. After working for decades as a professional pianist and composer, he decided to move to Chicago in 2015. I was choosing between some some cities in Chicago. I was not able to choose New York as an option for, for several reasons, budget, cost, I bring in my family and that. It just naturally, Chicago just came naturally. I already knew Chicago, the, the city, years um, before moving. I think that I came here to play, not here, but Notre Dame University. Okay, South uh, Bend. Yeah, the, I stayed here for a couple of nights and I just love the city. Yeah. And of course, I was aware of all the things that take place here, you know, like on the mainstream, as well as on the Roscoe Mitchell, Asian thing. Right. So it was a super, and you know, interesting environment to try to get in. And, and I was not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How does uh, Chicago's music scene compare with Mexico City? You know, in Mexico, there are some musicians making some nice music and so on. But there is something, you, we cannot separate the musician from the 
from people, you know, like from the human, we are the same, of course. It's, what I'm pointing at is that people here in Chicago are very open and are very friendly. They like to, to, to bring in people from the outside. That's a very specific thing of Chicago and some other pieces of Midwest. That is a very important difference. Because other cities, other places, yeah, I mean, you can be friendly, but one thing is to be friendly and the other thing is to be open, uh -huh. to receive, and then to hook, to mix musically and, and culturally, right? So, so I think that that is a very important difference of Chicago against Mexico or other cities, okay. that facility to blend in. After moving to Chicago, he formed his four-piece band, Imagery Converter. The group released its debut album, Ephemeral Certainties, in 2019. It made NPR's Jazz Critics list of best debut albums of that year. Red's new album, Life and Umbrella, came out earlier this year. The project comes from a very personal place. My son, 15 years old now, he, he's uh, within the autism umbrella and, uh, or, or a spectrum. Or he's autistic and uh, that gave me a lot of things to be feeling and reflecting and checking upon. And this album is about that. musicians sometimes we compose music because we just are looking at, to explore some sounds or some things in this side I felt I was needing to communicate something somehow it was very evident for me how uh, people autistic people they put a lot of effort to trying to understand people without autism like trying to to communicate to understand they, they go to workshops weekly or every day for for how to you know, to interact socially with persons without uh, autism. And then on the other side, I say like, hey, I just know about this because it happens me to be a father of one kid without autism. But otherwise, I will not know anything. I was wanting to contribute to that connection for people to understand emotionally, you know, like from the emotional standpoint, what is that world of people with autism? So I know it might be challenging to, to verbalize that process, but how would you describe the, the composition of this music? Uh, how do you turn those experiences and translate it into to music? It would be similar to how painters, even that a paint, an artwork is abstract, is referring to some specific emotions or, or, or situations in life, right? So I, I was making the, the melodies and the ideas of, of the compositions around certain things, like, like imagining certain images, certain things that, I, that I, I was able to recall from years and years of, of, of um, interacting uh, with my kid, and then putting some music like around that. Like I, will, I will feel that will be the right background music for that specific idea or that specific thing. We talked about the inspiration for the album's first track, Thoughts Unable to be Contained. The image that I was getting is, well, here comes some psychologists putting their, stating their points of view that uh, people with autism sometimes are um, unable to contain thoughts the way we contain them, like we, the way we learn them and, and we 
put them like in a library of things or concepts, their mind works differently. They go somewhere else, like sleeping, like, you know, like they oh, go okay. somewhere else. Okay. And then at some point unexpectedly, they can recall that. So if you listen to that music, how it starts, I was wanting to, to, to make that feeling of something that is like going, stepping up in a banana okay. <laughs> somewhere. And sliding. Uh, sliding, that's the word. Sliding Thank into you. something else. Yeah. What did your son think of the music? Have you played it for him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he's very happy. He's very happy for me to portray this music, to portray this message for, for people. He's uh, he's uh, he's proud of that he likes the idea, and uh, and it's not only him. Of course, this is my personal experience, but I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about people with autism, mm-hmm. and that's great. Red and Imagery Converter will be performing songs from Life and Umbrella Wednesday, August 30th at the Jazz Showcase. We're gonna be playing the whole show for for the album. Uh, I'm very happy this is my first invitation to play at Showcase. Oh, wow. And uh, super excited. All the band is super excited. And uh, so this is, yeah, Wednesday, Wednesday 30th, 8 p.m. Yeah. We're going to do two sets. That's pianist Javier Red. You can find more information about his performance at the Jazz Showcase by visiting jazzshowcase.com. And you can learn more about Red's music at his website, JavierRedMusic.com. And a quick reminder to check out theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features, all available on demand anytime you want on theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good to you. Steep Theater is presenting the U.S. premiere of British theater artist Ella Hickson's 2018 play, The Writer. From what I've read, the play has the potential to be polarizing. The playwright herself told The Independent... In London, quote, I've, I've never done a show where the demographic that likes it and the demographic that doesn't are quite so clearly defined. The young queer crowd interested in gender politics are going nuts, while the people who come from the more straightforward good night out find it a bit more uncomfortable. Should make for some interesting post-show conversations from audience members leaving this production. Directed here by Georgette Verdon, the writer is running at the Edge Theater through September 16th. I know a woman writer character is at the center of the play, but I don't know much else about the story. For that, I'll have to turn to the, the critics. And Jonathan, we'll start with you. I'm not sure where to start. I will <laughs> tell you that for me, the writer was challenging and intelligent and angry and confusing, which means that eventually it was off-putting. It never engaged me emotionally, but it did hold me intellectually for a while until I couldn't figure out what was going on anymore, and then I lost interest. It is, uh, Gary, as you suggested, it is a strongly feminist play, which shouldn't disqualify me from relating to it, or at least understanding it, but perhaps Carrie may do a better job than me explaining (laughs) what the writer is about, except for about two hours and 15 minutes. (laughs) So... 
Sharon, well, I, I, I'm I, I hand off to you. You know, point. I had some mixed feelings. I did find it engaging pretty much throughout. I agree with all of the things you're saying, though, that it can be off-putting. It can be confusing. Primarily what we'd like want people to know is that it's sort of, there's a play within a play. The first scene, a young woman is, you know, coming back into the theater and going up on the stage to retrieve something that she has left. And uh, a man who we pretty quickly find out, although he doesn't initially present himself as this, but we do find out that he is the director of the play, and they get into a very hammer-and-tong discussion about the play that she has just seen. She finds it pretty much useless, fluff, not doing what theater needs to do. Theater is a sacred trust. Theater should be talking about, you know, the issues that we're all facing. And this, if this sounds didactic and heavy-handed, it is, to an extent. But then we also get this little twist well, a couple, they're twists within twists, so this will get a little confusing. I'm going to try to keep it, you know, succinct. We find out that they actually do know each other. Uh, he purports not to remember her, but she had been a writer in a festival that he had been involved with. He had offered her a chance to get a slot at his theater, and then he came on to her at a bar. So that you wonder then, is she at this theater to really confront him? Was this confrontation after the show really the point of her being there? But then there's another twist, because the next scene is a post-show discussion, and we find out that what we had just seen was, in fact, from the play, so that, uh, that these are actors playing the roles of what we assume are the actual writer and director. That We don't really know how much of their personal relationship mirrors precisely what we see in that play within a play. What is clear from the talkback, and I actually found this a very funny scene, if anyone has ever sat through theater talkbacks and knows how painful they can be. Here it's the writer and the director going after each other. And I don't know, Jonathan, did you feel like there was something sort of self-inoculating in how Ella Hickson approaches this? Because the writer, the character of the writer, who is in fact the writer of the play that we've seen, I told you this gets confusing. (laughs) Um, You know, she sort of talks about, well, you know, the director is all up about structure and that his 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 obsession with structure, I don't know exactly what words she used because I don't have a copy of the script, in itself re- sort of referencing certain hierarchies of the patriarchy and of dominant culture. Right, right. Uh, so in a way, like I'm watching this going, is this your way of saying if we get on you about not following certain structures, then like you've already said, well, then you're wrong because you're part of the problem. <laughs> that could be a little irritating, but I also found it a little bit exhilarating. So I'm thinking... This is what a lot of writers think anyway, and she's just saying it. <laughs> I, guess uh, I, I landed on me, it. I don't know whether I can clarify it or not. I, <laughs> I, without, here, but here, without getting into the details, mm-hmm. because, I mean, you have just told us the details of scene one. And this yes. is a, well, this is a scene four, one and two, to be fair. The writer is in two acts, with two scenes in each act, each of them, each scene, having a completely different context. Now, two of the scenes, the first Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 2, Scene 2, two of them use a play-within-a-play device and feature a female playwright and a male director who engage in long academic dialectics about theater. The other two scenes show the playwright in more or less realistic domestic situations. Right. One with a man, a heterosexual relationship, the other with a woman. Both scenes portray sexual acts which are equally unsatisfying for the figure of the writer, who does not seem, frankly, to get along with anyone very well, nor take any pleasure in life. Now, I think the actual playwright, Ella Hickson, 
is satirizing the playmaking process of contemporary theater, as well as satirizing certain particular styles of theater. And yes, it's a self-referential play in many respects, and it's an irony, intended irony, that the big success of the writer in the play, the character of the writer, is a play called Angry Young Woman. <laughs> as Jason herself seems to be angry uh, just about everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it was at times frustrating, but I sort of found it, I, I guess, and I think you and I, Johnson, have split on this in the past, that I think I have talked about certain kinds of messiness that I find exhilarating. And I think for you, because you do have such a dramaturg brain, you focus on that structure too. And I'm not saying that's in any way a flaw on either of our parts. I think it's just an interesting split in perspective that is, I at least have noticed has sometimes come up as we talk about things, sometimes more heatedly than others. I don't feel particularly heated about disagreeing with you on some of this, because I think I actually am agreeing with you. I'm just reporting from my own perspective that I found it, albeit messy or, I don't want to say in show it, because I think there is a point of view. It's not that she doesn't know what she's saying. It's just that she doesn't particularly care whether it, how it lands with everybody, or if indeed everybody takes it in in the same way. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I don't yes. know. So I think, I, I think I took it in in a different way than you did. I yeah, appreciate yeah. it on those grounds, while still seeing what can be identified as possible flaws in well, the structure. I, I think you, uh, you, know, that's, you, you make a good point. My approach does tend to be somewhat uh, structural, um, dramaturgical, things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I always... When I worked as a literary manager, as a dramaturg, I, you know, I, I always tell a playwright, not always, it depends on the situation in the play, but I sometimes say the play you think you have written is not the play the mm. audience is perceiving. Um, and sometimes there's a disconnect there. And, and that may be something that's going on, but I, it just, this all seems so intentional. You know, the director, right. I'm, I'm going to, I'll, I'll come back to that, but give me a second here. Sure. The director is someone, Carrie, that you and I have admired for, for several years now, Georgette Verdon, and she's very creative with staging the writer, and she certainly has capable actors and a capable design team. But Ella Hickson, the playwright, just doesn't make things easy for mm. Verdon or the audience. For one thing, this is just an example. None of the characters have names. So right. when an actor reappears in a different scene, a scene which has no continuity with the earlier scenes, it's impossible for us in the audience to know if the actor is playing the same character as before or a different character. Now, you know, I don't mind plays which challenge me to think, indeed, that's the job, that's job one for theater, as, right. we, as, the, as the writer character in this play says. It's job one for theater. But I don't much care for plays which are puzzles, with the possible exception of a good murder mystery every now and then. <laughs> you know what? The writer was just too puzzling for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it, it raises the point, though, that not all theater is for everybody. And I don't mean that in a condescending way, like, oh, no, well, no, he just no, didn't no. get it. Then you know, I think that there are people who will uh, enjoy this, and not not strictly because of the, the more didactic, as you said, the set pieces that are like the play within the play where we're having these, or, or the discussions around the play itself. Um, I actually felt like the most interesting, but yeah, I would agree, sometimes the most frustrating scenes were those, let's call them the domestic scenes with the writer at home. And there were a few elements there that felt a little bit edging into surreality. At one point we hear a cry of a baby, and 
and we have not been told where this baby exists or if this baby even exists. That kind of came out of left field. There's also a long section where we that's a scene from the play where it's just women engaging in this sort of pastoral, you know, vision of women, women living together, loving each other away from the views of men. It's a burning man ritual for it's, women. It's, it's the Bacchae, only not quite as bloody. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, and I found, it, there is another play, and I cannot remember if you and I talked about this one on air or not, Jonathan. Did you see Wife of a Salesman, the Eleanor Burgess play that was up at Writers, yes, I think, last year? Theater, sure. You know, there's a little bit of the same device here with the play within the play. In this case, it's a play that's supposed to be about death of a salesman, and it's the woman from Boston that Willie's been having his affair with, and the wife coming together in a confrontation that never actually happens in Miller's play. But there is a lot of discussion there with the male director about what what is the nature of conflict, what is the nature of the structure. So I, I just, I mean, I don't know if two plays constitutes a trend, but um, having just, you know, seen that relatively recently, it did come to mind as I was watching Ella Hickson's play, The Writer, that maybe this is something that there's a generation, and I don't know age differentially, you know, where these two writers, these two women writers are, but a, a, a women directly confronting the nature of what theater is and saying, you know, and this is not new. I mean, people have been talking about remaking the structure and breaking the rules for a long time, but it does feel to me like maybe both of these plays in their own ways, are trying to challenge that. Now, whether that challenge works or not, I think really, I mean, there's going to be a wide range of reactions to this. And, you know, yeah. you, the thing you quoted from Ella Hicks and Gary at the top here, I think points out that maybe that's what that that's what she's going for. And if so, you know, well played. <laughs> that goal yeah, has yeah. been achieved, I would no. say. I just feel that a playwright needs to take the audience with him, her, them on the journey. And I, you know, and there may be... You pay your money, you take your choice. There may be a lot of folks out there who who can make the connections, but uh, I guess I'm not one of them. Steep Theater's production of the U.S. premiere of The Writer continues through September 16th. Carrie, was there something else you wanted to touch on? But I do want to, I think this will segue into something you and I were also going to talk about, which is Georgette Bearden as a director. You mentioned murder mysteries. I, I know that she directed, it wasn't a murder mystery, but... Uh, Enough to Let the Light In with Teatro Vista, which is a mystery ghost story. I think she has yeah. um, another mystery noir type piece that she's going to be directing at Raven coming up. She's a very gifted director and is now the associate artistic director at North Light Theater, which I think is a great uh, step forward. But that step forward seems to have come at the cost of us losing another small storefront company uh, in Tarobang, which she headed for the last several years. I don't think she was a founding artistic director, but she was certainly a key figure um, in keeping them afloat yeah. up through, you know. Up to, up um, to right now, yeah. She, yeah. she was artistic director for eight or uh, eight years, 2015 yeah. to 2023. Uh, and and, and Bang Theater Project is the uh, mm-hmm. official name of the company. Uh, it's 13 years old, and they have just announced that they are closing down, shutting down all operations uh, on August 31st, which is the end of their physical year. And right. uh, I thought the statement they made is uh, not only uh, to the point, but it, it you know, because this, Bang is not the only theater that has shut down. And the reasons cited uh, post-pandemic are often the same. And so I'm going to read their statement. Uh, there were many considerations that brought Interrobank Theater Project's board and staff to this decision, 
including a shrinking board, staff, and ensemble due to pandemic-related pivots, hiring challenges, and shifting expectations surrounding pay and sustainability. We consider it to we consider it a privilege to be in a position to close our theater project on our own terms. We've always cared deeply about leading this organization with integrity, and this decision was made with the same care. Um, you know that's that's lovely, and it is it is true. Several of the other companies that have shut down have cited issues of equitability in terms of pay and sustainability, because the truth is that. Uh, you know, non-equity or non-union off-loop mm-hmm. theater companies that we consider to be professional usually pay their actors a little. Um, you know, if they have any right. full-time salary positions, they're the management positions. Right. And it's brave. It's courageous for the leadership, right. for the boards to say, we can't do it this way anymore. Right. And I think it's a, there's been a lot of talk about pay equity. There's been a lot of essays very recently you know, talking about is there are there ways to give more money directly to artists? You know, for years people have talked about well, you know the edifice complex that funders will give for buildings and for major projects, but not for the sustainability of artists themselves. Really, I don't have much to add to that except that I agree with you, Jonathan. It's a very good statement, very to the point. And I would just like to say that when you're thinking about who the greatest donors are to the arts in America, especially to theater, the greatest donors to theater in America are the theater artists themselves because yes. they are donating yes. so much unpaid time or poorly compensated time to bring us these shows. And that's and that's pretty much at every level. I mean certainly Broadway people make more, regional theater or contracts people make more. But in the grand scheme they really are, you know, the the ones shouldering that. Along with, you know, the the people, the poorly paid people on staff and the and the people on the stage crews and all of that. So which isn't my way of saying, so just love everything you see because those poor folk I mean, I don't want to that's not at all what I'm saying, but I would like us to when we think about what's happening in theater to remember that none of it happens unless there are people like the writer or the director <laughs> or the actor, the designer, who are willing to, you know, take that step and put that work out there, knowing that they will very, very likely see very, uh, very little in actual financial uh, compensation for their efforts. We'll miss Intero Bang. We the... will. We will miss Intero Bang. It, it is, we, we didn't note it, but it is, uh, they have been an award-winning and often award-nominated off-loop theater company, uh, really representing uh, the best uh, in Chicago's off-loop theater scene. So they they will be missed. And yet, other off-loop theater companies are soldiering on. A lot mm-hmm. of them are building new buildings, and we're going to talk about that uh, next week. Yes, indeed. All right. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, You're welcome. I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned in to listener-supported WDCB. This is the Arts Section. It's been a mixed bag at the box office this year. Lots of excitement surrounding some big-budget movies. 
But many of them have landed in theaters with a thud, leading to some concerns in Hollywood. But there's also been some legit hits. The animated Super Mario Brothers, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and of course, Barbenheimer. The dual release of Barbie and Oppenheimer brought people back to the cinema in droves this past month. Of course, those are the big releases. There's also a number of medium to small films that get lost in the shuffle because all the attention goes to some of these gigantic releases. I called on friend of the show Nick Allen, film critic and senior editor at RogerEbert.com, to talk to me about some of his favorite movies of the year so far. So it's been a, an interesting year at the movies. There's been some pretty big box office disappointments and a handful of hits. The phenom known as Barbenheimer lived up to the hype. Just when you look at 2023 in general, has anything surprised you? I think it's maybe surprised uh, certainly is, is the, uh, the Barbenheimer phenomenon, starting with that someone made a toy movie that could be so accessible, so to speak. But also about Oppenheimer being like a three-hour movie full of talking and, you know, board meetings, so to speak. And yet that has made so much money. And so it's been, a really, it's been funny as a year in which there are lessons to be learned or there is space to be restored in what people will see or what audiences are willing to dive into. But it also has been like kind of ugly to see movies like Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 break in much kind of less than they were expected, or they weren't the event movies that people assumed they were going to be given their star pedigree and also the, the general interest in cinematic experience. So it turned out that, like, you know, the, the surer winners were Oppenheimer and, and Barbie, which is really interesting. So it's been quite a strange summer in that regard, but it's been great news to hear about the Barbenheimer success. But it is also funny that this might be the last time we have one of these for a long time. I can't, you know what I mean? Like, I can't think of any upcoming movie tentpole things that I'll be able to turn into a social experience and not just, oh, I'll go see a franchise I like. Right. I mean, yeah, we could see studios try to replicate uh, what happened by dual releases but yeah it, i guess it's just kind of evidence that you can never really predict what the movie going public really likes i mean you you can predict to a certain extent but uh, even last year i don't know that industry insiders really knew that top gun was going to blow up the way it did and then uh, this year i think there was expectations that barbie would would do well but nobody predicted how many tickets it would sell totally uh, I think um, I think yeah, people were just. I mean, I, I think also like the, the quality or like at least the interesting factors of the movie really adds to it. But I do think there's something to be said that Barbie is the first movie in a long time that looks like it's just offering you fun. And so many movies, if you kind of think about it, these temples we're talking about, they do have and they do have a uh, you know they require a certain emotional investment, or emotional stakes that are expected to. But it's different than uh, a movie that just like wants you to enjoy the brighter colors and, and bright characters then and then be challenged and, and have a lot of discussion afterward but i think that's an interesting piece about the barbie phenomenon is that it is like the first movie in a long time i can think of to have this kind of support and size but also to be based in fun or to be more like a comedy whereas the previous event movies we've been talking about are all like scowling men on the poster so let's actually shift into your list. I asked you on the show to talk about your favorite films of 2023 to this point, and the first movie we're going to talk about is is Barbie. This is one of your, your favorite films of the year. Yeah, it's certainly also one of the most interesting blockbusters to come out in a long time. Interesting meaning like a conversation piece or challenging or, or, or you know, you can't not do that movie and then not have thoughts about 
what it's saying or what it's just using dolls and, and uh, branding to talk about. Um, I do think it's certainly not without its flaws, but it is a very intriguing phenomenon as its own movie, um, as its own batch of ideas, and also artistry. So I uh, certainly got to advocate for a blockbuster that really kind of pushes what a blockbuster can be, uh, and, and usually and w- and with a good amount of sincerity. Shredding waves is much more dangerous than people realize. You're very brave, Ken. Thank you, Barbie. Yeah. You know surfer's not even my job. I know. And it is not lifeguard, which is a common misconception. Very common. Yeah, because actually my job, it's just beach. Right. And what a good job you do at beach. You should heal up in no time. Actually, in the time that it took for me to say that sentence, you healed. Fantastic. Nice. (laughs) Hey, Barbie. Yeah. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. That was Ryan Gosling as Ken and Margot Robbie as Barbie in a scene from the film Barbie. And a few months ago, you were on the show and we were talking about toy-based movies and and how some of those have done. For me, going into Barbie, I just really had no idea what they were going to do with this. You know, I saw the trailer, but the trailer really doesn't give much away as far as the, the story. What did you think as far as what they did with the Barbie character? It wasn't like other toy movies like you mentioned because it wasn't trying to sell you toys first or didn't, didn't doesn't feel like that you can see all cool set pieces and you can see different props and, and vehicles and all that kind of stuff but the movie does not have the initial air of oh this is just trying to sell me a toy which I think it certainly could have had and probably did in earlier versions now we'll move on to another movie on your list and, and the next uh, few are films that, that might have gotten kind of lost in the, the shuffle. So next up is a film by a director I know you like, Ari Aster, uh, Bo is Afraid, and this stars Joaquin Phoenix. There was some marketing around this, but I, I feel like it kind of came and went pretty quickly. It's, it's certainly unlike anything else this year, uh, which makes it stand out and has made it a favorite for a lot of the directors and so forth, um, but it's kind of like this three-hour tragic comedy about this 40-something-year-old virgin going back to his family home in the Odyssey to get there while navigating a world of Oedipal triggers and general um, claustrophobic anxieties with the people in the chaotic world around him. So it has Joaquin Phoenix kind of acting like a an 11-year-old boy who stopped growing up but just kept aging. And it's very much uh, entwined with the feelings one might have with a, a parent that are not uh, sound um, and how that has affected uh, the child throughout years and their lack of development. But it's funny, and it's very dark, it's very trippy, and it certainly is uh, very unique. But it is, it is its own kind of odyssey to understanding the darkest parts about Bo, played incredibly by walking Phoenix. And for listeners maybe not as familiar, Ari Aster has primarily done what you would call horror films, right? I mean, they're not traditional horror films, but they would be branded as that? Yeah, I could say they're horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of a departure. Uh, No, I would say it's horrifying in different ways. It's it's tuned into, as a director, when he was making shorts, um, which you can find online, they can be kind of funny and very anxious. Um, but had the same idea of there's always a larger plot around you, there's a scheme around you, but you just can't see it. And this movie is a bit more funny with it, but I would say it does uh, try to be horrifying 
but in a much more psychological level in terms of his relationship with his mother, who is played by Patty LuPone in this amazing performance. Yeah, I would say horrifying. I mean, like just like Hereditary is about a family or Midsummer is about a relationship, this one is about one's relationship with the mother. Now, I haven't seen Bo is Afraid, but I, I did see the trailer, and what it reminded me of was the Aronofsky film Mother. Any parallels there? Yeah, yeah definitely that same experience. Uh, kind of claustrophobic, kind of uh, spinning. This one uh, is longer, and it changes a lot of locations, but it has that same feeling where it is supposed to be a uh, meaningfully draining experience. And I, another movie that I think uh, is more just a, as a director kind of shooting for everything, and they get most of it. There's certain, it's not without its flaws, and I won't begrudge anybody for saying it's like too long or drawn out. I certainly have my qualms with it, but it is quite a unique movie experience, and uh, it's good to know that, that they can still be made. These kind of strange, kind of watch them multiple times experiences. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Chicago-based film critic Nick Allen about some of his favorite films of 2023 to this point. Next up is an indie film called The Year Between, and I guess I would describe it as a a dramedy. It's uh, definitely got some serious undertones, but with some comedic elements, and this comes from a, a young filmmaker named Alex Heller. Yeah, it's a movie that was written and directed by Alex Heller about her own experience of being in college and then diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And then uh, the movie is a kind of funny observation, but very honest, I guess you could say. It's a lot of movies about this kind of subject matter can be either too gentle or too on the nose and careless. And this is that perfect balance um, symbolized by her incredible performance um, as someone who uh, is um, very dry, self-amusing, very dark, but also has an interest of kind of trying to rebond with the family that she's now living with again. So it's an impressive writer-director debut, but also as an actor. It's one of those movies that when I saw it, I thought, I mean, I hope we see a lot more of this person, given like the, the many talents that they have, and certainly a pride that they are from the Chicago area. They're shot in Chicago in the suburbs and so forth. So definitely one of the best uh, Chicago shot movies I've seen in a long time. Let's uh, take a second here. We'll listen to a clip from the year between. Do you feel like you have dramatic highs? I mean, that last for days. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. And afterwards, you crash. You feel hopeless and, and lose all the spark. I guess maybe, yeah. It sounds like you're experiencing episodes of mania and and depression. What I'm leading to is bipolar disorder. Uh, okay. Um, so, what? She's a hundred years old. Why should we trust her? Are those my shoes? I don't know. They were at the front door. Okay. With medication and therapy, you can eventually begin to feel better, normal. So, um, what do we do next? I mean, I just want to be sure that Clemens is listening because she is the one who will be responsible for her treatment. I hear you. And that was a scene from the new film, The Year Between. We heard from Alex Heller, who's also the writer and director. She plays 
Clemens, the main character. Her mom is played by J. Smith Cameron, who many of you might know from the popular TV series Succession. And we also heard Waltridis Buck played the uh, psychiatrist in the scene. And the film is shot in the Chicago area. I looked up some filming locations. Uh, I believe it was Palos Heights and some other southwest suburbs. And then in the film, it, it's set in, in an Illinois town. It doesn't really name it, though. On a, a piece of mail, there was an Oak Brook address. I'm not sure if Alex Heller has any connection to the Oak Brook area or if she just picked that at, at random. I've always enjoyed those locally shot films and then trying to figure out where they film certain scenes. And now it's on Peacock. Right. People can stream this on Peacock if you have that streaming platform. And now we'll move on to your next pick, and this is also available on Peacock. We didn't plan that, just happens that way. This is a film called Polite Society. I'm not as familiar with this one. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Polite Society is about? Uh, yeah, Polite Society um, is, did, it was a bit under the radar. It didn't get the kind of big push it deserved. It did come out in uh, mid, late April, so right before summer kicked off. But it truly is one of those great uh, genre mashups, one of those kind of genre surprises where you see a movie and you're like, oh, I didn't know that a movie could be like this. Or This is very exciting to see someone attempt it. So in this case, it's kind of like a martial arts Jane Austen coming of age movie set in the life of a British Pakistani teenager who wants to be a stunt woman. But at the same point, she wants to defend her older sister, uh, Lena, who's an artist, from marrying a guy that she has uh, that uh, the younger sister has suspicions about, so to speak, including her, if you say, daunting, venomous mother, his mother, who was really trying to advocate for a marriage. And this is a, a British film? Yes, uh, it's a British film. It's, a, it's the uh, debut from uh, the director of the show uh, We Are Lady Parks, which is on Peacock, uh, Nita Manzur. And it's uh, kind of like, it's, it's also just an amazing debut that makes you want to see more uh, and also hopes they get to make as big of a movie as they want to. That was an eclectic list uh, of things to, to check out. Anything that's uh, on the calendar that's coming up that you're especially looking forward to this fall? Uh, well, I'm looking forward to that Leonard Bernstein movie by uh, Bradley Cooper. Oh, yeah. I uh, love A Star is Born, and either, you know, I think Maestro, as it's called, could be either a uh, an Oscar desperate movie or it could be very interesting and hoping for the latter because I thought A Star is Born was fantastic phenomenal yada yada um so <laughs> hoping that he applies his uh his sensitivity as a growing filmmaker to this story but i can also imagine it to be just um caught up in the mechanics of awards space right right yeah that's a uh, that's one that's definitely on my list intrigued i've always been a big leonard bernstein fan yeah that's interesting because it's going to be i guess get like a a small release but then it'll be on netflix yes yeah it looks like it'll be um it looks like number one that'll still come out this year which is great and also it looks like that it'll get the um the usual kind of turnout for these prestige movies that they'll do a limited release in like New York, LA, and, and then they'll probably release in Chicago, and then a month later, that's what you might get. So, definitely looking forward to that. Listeners can check out Nick's writing by going to rogerebert.com. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's Nick Allen. He's a Chicago-based film critic and senior editor at RogerEbert.com. You're tuned in to WDCB. This is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. Over 35 years after his death, Andy Warhol's legacy is as relevant as ever. 
some of his works are among the most recognizable pieces of art in the world, and his thoughts on fame and celebrity seem especially prescient. Yet Warhol's talent and depth of thought are sometimes overshadowed by his carefully crafted public persona. Do you take more than one picture or only one? No, I take, I take at least 200 or maybe more. You never try to make it look like life, do you? Uh, gee, I don't know how. That was from a BBC interview with Warhol in 1981. A new exhibit at College of DuPage's Cleve Carney Museum of Art is aiming to offer a more comprehensive look at the artist who once said, in the future, everybody will be world famous for 15 minutes. A lot of what he did and was focused on is, was very predictive of our contemporary society. Like, he always walked around later in life with his camera, constantly taking pictures, documenting his life like we all do now. This is Cleve Carney Museum of Art curator Justin Witte. He was very aware of the power of fame and cultural icons, uh, something that we're even more involved with now. Um, his idea of what constituted artwork was more in line with contemporary ideas now. So, so in short answer, yeah, he's absolutely one of the most well-known uh, American artists from the last century. That's what comes to mind for me, just his, his ideas about celebrity and now the way us as a society kind of use different modes of technology. But uh, I think he's got that quote about everyone's 15 minutes of fame. and right. so kind will we'll be famous for 15 minutes. And it's funny because I think that he's someone who would love like what we're doing now. He would love how portable technology is. I think social media would kind of be where he lived at this moment. And in a way, he was almost he was almost living kind of a social media star life ahead of the technology. He had to use the technology of the time because so much of what he was doing was reflecting, right? He was reflecting American culture in terms of its uh, obsession with fame, of wealth, of success, and the way he uh, produced his items through kind of mechanical means of production, the way he positioned himself. So he was really f reflecting the culture at large just the same way that social media reflects our culture today. What was your relationship to Warhol's work coming into this project? Were you a fan? I would say before I started working at the college, I had a similar view to a lot of people about Warhol, like, oh yeah, Warhol, he's there. He's in the landscape of art history and you kind of like see his work and you can recognize it. And maybe because it was so present, you, I didn't always go deeper beyond that. Um, I think since, you know, being a steward of the collection of the college, I've learned a lot more about him, seeing the work up close, also researching and learning about the photographs. And that helped to kind of deepen my understanding of who he was. And then in the process of this show, really researching his life, I think he's a much more complex figure than I or a lot of people initially think of him as uh, because of the way he intentionally crafted his own persona, his life, to uh, not give away too much because he wanted everyone to kind of see what they wanted. Now, you know, posthumously, people are able to look at different aspects of his life that maybe weren't as accessible before. And it actually, I think it adds more texture and uh, relatability to him as an artist. And it, it really benefits the work, I think. This Warhol exhibit is another feather in the cap of the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Two years ago, the Glen Ellen-based museum presented a Frida Kahlo exhibition. Mackinage Arts Center director Diana Martinez has led both projects. She says the origins of the Warhol exhibit go back to a relationship that was developed while working on the Kahlo project. Bank of America was our sponsor for Frida. 
and the relationship that we've developed with them over the several years that we worked on Frida, we found out they have an incredible art collection and they have a magnificent collection of Andy Warhols. We talked to them and Carrie Miles, who is in charge of their collection, uh, said they have a program where they can loan that art to us. And so we thought, well, what a great follow-up to Frida Mm -hmm. is that we'll have a huge summer exhibition in the summer of 2023 and transform the Art Center once again. Now it will be a big, huge celebration of Andy Warhol and pop art. Once the opportunity presented itself, Martinez and Witte embarked on a comprehensive research process to figure out what a Warhol exhibition would look like at the Mackinage Arts Center. The first step is always research, because if you understand the artist and where they're from and the time period they worked, it really spurs ideas. And I think all the research that we did, respectively, you know, we went to Justin Witte, our curator, and I, we went to the Warhol Museum, and that spurs some ideas. And then we went to his hometown. For me, that spurred ideas. And I think being at the museum and seeing so much art about animals, I realized he loved animals. And I'm like, that'd be great for the kids' area. And then going to New York and doing research there and a walking tour and reading books and watching documentaries and things, each thing spurs a thought. Given the scope and prolific nature of Warhol's career, Woody says a lot of time was spent planning and researching. If we have this arc, we want to talk about his early years through his work as a commercial artist, through the factory years into late work. What points on that path do we want to highlight? Like what shows, what artworks? Once that decision made, there's research about the stories and facts surrounding those, getting rights to images to present them, and at the same time designing the physical designing, like architectural designing of the spaces, like how are people going to move through the space? How can it best highlight the work? How can it, how can we have enough room to hang all the work? So like in the museum, we had to build a lot of walls to be able to hang all the prints from Bank of America. As that evolves, then it's just a constant refining and tightening of all those elements. Do you believe in feelings and emotions? Well, no, I don't, but uh, I have them. I wish, I wish I didn't. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with curator Justin Witte and Mackinac Arts Center director Diana Martinez, two of the people behind the Andy Warhol exhibition that's currently on display at the College of DuPage's Cleve Carney Museum of Art for another three weeks. There are over 200 original Warhol works in the exhibit. 94 are on loan from the Bank of America collection. One of the earliest collections uh, is from 1969, which is a series of his soup cans, which is a subject matter he returned to at different points in his career. And then it, it follows with bodies of work all the way through uh, the 80s. I'd say their collection's a little heavier towards that latter end of his career, but there are examples like uh, there's a wonderful Maryland print, his famous flowers prints, and also one of his prints from the uh, Birmingham Race Riot series. In addition to the Bank of America works, College of DuPage has its own collection of Warhol pieces. For our listeners, I think a little known uh, tidbit is that the College of DuPage has some Andy Warhol pieces. Yeah, we actually have seven prints, six of them from gifted from the Andy Warhol Foundation, one gifted from um, uh, Dr. Helga and Dolores Frank, who are um, uh, community members uh, who were from Oak Brook. They donated one of the prints in our collection. And then 157 photos 
that were gifted to the school through the Andy Warhol Photographic Legacy Project. So in 2008, uh, then curator Barbara Wisen applied for this program that the uh, photographic that the Warhol Andy Warhol Foundation was doing as a way to share their collection of his Polaroids and photos with smaller art centers and museums as a way to both highlight the work but also highlight those spaces. So through her work, she was able to establish getting that collection. And then since I've started, it's been part of my job maintaining and presenting that the work from that collection. It's really the gem at the center of the show. I think one of the most interesting aspects is that presentation of the photos because they show Andy's process through the Polaroids. You can see him trying different compositions and portraits. But there's also a lot of black and white photos from his everyday life. And you get a sense of um, Andy Warhol, the person, you know, behind the kind of celebrity, the big name artist, snapshots from his everyday. And I think anytime you're able to get that human connection with an artist, it really opens up all of their work because they're no longer this kind of monolithic force, but very much someone that you can relate to and understand more of the personal side to what they do. When visitors enter the Mackinage Arts Center, there will be a number of things to see. They can head right toward the Cleve Carney Museum of Art gallery space to check out the original Warhol works, or they can make their way through a biographical exhibit that traces the major moments of Warhol's life and career. Visitors will also be able to engage with a number of other offerings, including a Studio 54 installation. We took our Playhouse Theater, and it has 10 costume recreations by our in-house costume designer, Kim Morris, who recreated some of the more um, iconic people who visited Studio 54, from Jacqueline Kennedy to Cher to Elton John to John Travolta, um, Liza Minnelli, and of course Warhol. Uh And you can see them, their their costume recreations, and they're in music and a video of, of video clips of what it was like in Studio 54. The Arts Center's outdoor pavilion has been transformed into a little piece of Central Park, and there's a Warhol-themed kids area. The Mackinac Arts Center has also scheduled a number of talks, lectures, and other programming to complement the exhibit. We have really fabulous guests that are coming. If you buy a ticket to the exhibit, you're welcome to come to any of the lectures throughout. And on several Thursday evenings, we have lectures like Eric Shiner, who was the director of the Warhol for many, many years, Jessica Beck, who is a curator at the Warhol. We have Thomas Kidrowski, who is um, a man who wrote Andy Warhol's Walking Tour of New York, and he's a really fabulous person with fun stories. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Freeman was Andy's assistant when he was, uh, he was really like an intern in high school. Okay. And he interviewed for a- Andy for the school newspaper. And Andy really thought he was pretty, you know, sweet that he was doing this. And he said, well, you want a job? And the kid was like, well, yeah. (laughs) And so he gave him a job being his assistant and making sure he got to work, which afforded him to go to Andy's house every day and see, you know, get him out the door and get him, drive him to work or whatever he had to do. But he really got to see a very intimate side of Andy with his mother living with him, the cats in the house. He shares that Andy would often stop at church on his way to work. And he worked at the factory, right, where all those crazy stories are. So he offers a lot of firsthand personal insight, and he'll be here on Andy's birthday on August 6th.
The Frida Kahlo exhibit in 2021 was a success by all accounts. No doubt there are high expectations for this Warhol exhibit. Martinez is optimistic, but also acknowledges it's hard to predict how the community will respond. I think that it's a different time than when we did Frida. When we did Frida, there, there's nothing else going on. We're just coming out of the pandemic. So now there's a lot of distraction and, you know, it, the sales are different. People buy last minute. So it's hard to tell where we're really at. But the one thing I'm pretty confident about is from the few people who've come through, um, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that the word of mouth will be quite positive and that that will be a, a real trigger. Frida, Andy Warhol, what's next? Well, you know, we, we've had a meeting with curators in Italy that flew out to see how we do a show that came out last week to kind of preview what we we're up to. And they were very, very positive and hoping that we could work together and bring in some really big names from Europe. So that's what we're looking at next. Right now, though, it's all Warhol all the time over at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Woody says he's hoping visitors take away a deeper understanding of one of the world's most popular artists. Leave with more of an open mind to some deeper content behind his work, and hopefully that that would relate to how they then look at different artists or different aspects of our society, not always assuming that, oh, just by presenting a soup can that's kind of like poppy or whatever, but what are some of the reasons for it? You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean when you're presenting the consumer can of soup that everyone consumes at the same level and a year later presenting Marilyn Monroe as a celebrity and then presenting images of car crashes or an electric chair? In a way, it's this leveling, right, saying these are all items being produced by our society and kind of presented at the same level, right? Celebrity is its own product on the same level as a can of soup. Tragedy and sensationalism on the same level as a can of soup. And they're presented and consumed by us all at the same level. And that becomes a much more nuanced and at times critical, but also honest reflection of us culturally. And that's intentional, right? So I would always want people to leave any show we work on with this idea of like, well, maybe things deserve that deeper look. That was Justin Witte. He's the curator of the Warhol exhibition at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Earlier, we heard from Diana Martinez, the director of the Mackinage Arts Center at College of DuPage. The Warhol exhibit is on display for another three weeks through September 10th. You can find more info at theccma.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Everything is alright. You kiss and tell me everything's alright. Can I get away again tonight? The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could.
the preacher man. Yes, he was. Oh. 